Hello, I'm Kevin Richard. In 2018, the group Reclaim Idaho was the architect behind a successful voter initiative to expand Medicaid. Three years later, the group has turned its attention to public schools. Reclaim Idaho is now pushing a voter initiative that would raise income taxes by more than $300 million a year and put the proceeds into K-12. I sat down this week with Luke Mayville. He is the co-founder of Reclaim Idaho. We talk about the initiative, we talk about the signature gathering process, and we talk about Reclaim Idaho's successful lawsuit against the legislature regarding initiative law. Here's our conversation. Well, Luke, thanks for coming in this week. Uh, wanted to get caught up on the initiative process, on the signature gathering process. You're back out in the field with the new version of the K-12 funding initiative. So how is it going and what are you and your volunteers hearing out in the field? Well, thank you. It's good to be with you, Kevin. Um, it's going really well. Uh, the new version of this initiative is called the Quality Education Act. Um, we've been out getting signatures since earlier in the summer, but the truth is that for most of the summer, we had this strange cloud hanging over us, not just because of the record-breaking heat wave and the <laughs> global pandemic, mm -hmm. but also because the Idaho Supreme Court um, sure. was considering a, a, a big case on initiatives. And the decision of the court, we knew, would largely determine whether we would even be able to put an initiative on the ballot. Fortunately, a little over a month ago, the court ruled in our favor and really protected the initiative process and made it much more possible to get initiatives on the ballot. So ever since that ruling, we've been gaining a lot of momentum with our signature drive for the Quality Education Act. We are just, uh, as of this recording, we're just under 20,000 signatures. And you and need 65,000. 65,000 statewide. It does get a little challenging because those have to be valid. So, right. that, so that adds probably a, another, you know, a bunch of signatures that we'll have to get. And you still got the 18 legislative districts that you need to meet the, the threshold in. That's right. We need to get, we need at least, we need signatures from at least 6% of registered voters, both statewide and in each of 18 different legislative districts. Um, but we've got good news on that front because there are teams all over the state working on this, teams of volunteers led by local volunteer leaders and um, there are currently, I think, at least 25 teams that around the state that have already reported signatures to us. So we're building a lot of momentum. And I want to get into the, the legal challenge in the Supreme Court ruling here in a bit, but let's just take a step back and just take a minute to walk readers through the, the basics of the initiative. I mean. How is this going to work if it passes? Who would wind up paying and where would the money wind up going within education? Well, the Quality Education Act initiative would raise over $300 million a year for uh, K-12 education. Uh, that's about $1,000 per year per student. Uh, it would go towards, the money would go towards two big priorities. Number one, strong programs. In, in things ranging from career technical education to arts, music, and drama to full-day kindergarten and a number of other programs that are underfunded. And number two, the second big priority is better pay for teachers and support staff. And by the way, that also includes um, counselors and school psychologists. 
the big goals of the initiative are really to give kids uh, you know, the skills they need to make a living, to have opportunity, and to give, make sure they have access to qualified teachers and support staff because we know that matters so much um, when we're talking about the quality of education. Now, how is it paid for? That's, that's mm-hmm. a big question yeah. that people often want to know. Um, and we strongly believe that this is one of the best parts of the initiative. It is paid for with no new taxes on anyone making under a quarter of a million dollars per year. Uh, and, and the tax reforms in the initiative are two. Number one, it would restore the corporate income tax rate to what it used to be, which is 8%. And then number two, the initiative would add a new income tax only on income that a married couple earns over $500,000 a year. So no new taxes on their first 500,000, but a new income tax level on the amount they make above 500,000. Above that threshold. And then for an individual, um, that threshold would be uh, 250,000, or in other words, a quarter of a million dollars per year. We think this is a fair, balanced way uh, to generate a lot of funding for education. No, but it still it puts your initiative. It, it runs counter to the political headwinds we've seen at the state house last legislative session, and probably going into the twenty-two session. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot of appetite towards tax relief. How do you make the case for? increasing taxes on folks making 250000 or 500000 mm-hmm. in the case of couples or, or corporations? Well, when we hear from volunteers all around the state who are collecting signatures for this initiative, and when, and when I myself have gone on all around the state collecting signatures, you do hear a lot of concerns about taxes, but the concerns about taxes are usually about property taxes, um, and they're, or, or they're about the really heavy tax burden that people feel is placed on the middle class. Um, You don't hear a lot of worry about taxes on the very highest earners in the state. And you don't hear a whole lot of worry about taxes on large corporations. Um, In fact, we have people in that category who who make over 500,000 as a married couple and who are actually coming out in support of this and eventually we'll expect them to uh, hopefully write some op-eds and things, Mm -hmm. basically making the argument that, look, we can afford this. This is something that we can afford and and we care a lot about the future of our state. And on top of that, we know that if we want a strong business climate in Idaho, one of our number one priorities should be educating our workforce. So you're kind of you're kind of a, a laboratory in the sense of you are pushing for a very similar initiative. I mean, I know you've changed the wording somewhat, but you were focusing on trying to get a similar initiative on the ballot before the pandemic struck in 2020. Now you're back in the field with with a K-12 funding initiative. Has the mood changed at all among the electorate? Are you sensing anything different? You know, pre-pandemic as opposed mm-hmm. to the current state of affairs? It's difficult to say, but I'll just give you a few observations from the field being out there and again hearing from volunteers who are also out there collecting signatures all over the state. Um, 
One thing that has changed, even since two years ago, is that the cost of living has gone way up. Mm -hmm. Um, We've all seen um, home values skyrocket, uh, which which, means that the price of a home, if you don't have one yet, has skyrocketed, which means that rent has skyrocketed. Mm -hmm. Um, And that has really put educators in a bind. Um, Not just teachers, but uh, support staff who are often earning wages that I think it's very fair to call poverty wages. Mm-hmm. Um, really difficult to pay rent on those wages. And that has changed just in the last two years that, that the kind of crunch that teachers and other um, you know, staff in our schools are facing is even more severe. Right. The housing boom has really affected this sector of the economy, this, this sector of the labor market. That's right. And then and then you, in addition, you hear over and over again, you know, two years ago, um, teachers and support staff were likely to talk a lot about the, the, the strain on them brought about by lack of funding. Um, and by the way, not they'll often talk about not just not just their own pay, but the lack of funding for the programs and the materials that make for a better work environment for them. Um, They talked about that a lot two years ago. What's added to the mix now is the the additional stress um, brought about by COVID and and one other factor which we should talk about as well, but the the additional stress brought about by COVID only exacerbates you know the stress that already existed when they felt like they were operating in a very under-resourced mm-hmm. environment now there's one other factor as well which which is all the various controversies that have really erupted around education whether it be pandemic related mask related controversies or whether it be concerns over you know so-called um, indoctrination or um, critical race theory or what have you and that all has brought about just a general um, sense of of stress around, you know, what could what what could and often has been called a toxic work environment. Mm-hmm. Um, a whole a whole lot more scrutiny placed on teachers, even people coming into schools and suggesting that they should be under constant surveillance and there should be video cameras in the classroom and things like that. So you add all these factors. The, the the underfunding was always there, but then on top of it, the way that the underfunding has been exacerbated by these pandemic era factors um, really do seem to add to the sense of strain that that our educators are facing. Um, and it intensifies a teacher shortage that that's teacher right salaries too. could help. That's right, too. It, 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 it intensifies a teacher shortage to the point where you're seeing... And Kevin, I think you know a lot more about this than I do, but um, various districts around the state are actually, you know, calling off weeks of school mm-hmm. due to due to not just teacher shortages, but also substitute shortages, bus, bus drivers, drivers we have one this week. Right. So um, I will add one more thing, though, that is happening in this era that wasn't quite around. And this is related to a comment made a moment ago. Um, the concern over things like like what's called indo- indoctrination or um, critical race theory, that throws a new factor into the mix when you're putting an initiative on the ballot and you're asking voters to support education. Um, 
how what what we what we found so far, however, when we've talked with thousands of people, is that it's not it's not inconsistent for a voter to be very concerned with all kinds of issues of what's being taught in the classroom and still want their schools funded adequately. Mm -hmm. So it's really common for us, and I wouldn't have necessarily predicted this, but it's really common. You go all over the state, you ask people if they'll sign a, a petition that would increase funding for education, you tell them about how it would be funded, you give them the whole explanation, and they'll say, does this initiative have anything to do with critical race theory? And we'll say, it doesn't, it doesn't, it, this initiative does not affect the curriculum. This initiative is really an effort to provide funding for the basics, things like better pay for teachers and strong programs. And almost every time they'll sign. Um, because in, for them, there's not, they're concerned about the curriculum, but that doesn't then spill over into a desire to defund. Take, defund. And, and I know that that's, that's not necessarily true of some of our, um, you know, lobbyist groups in Boise. They, they see the two together. They want, they want to scrutinize the curriculum and then, and then cut funding at the same time. But we've, we've found, it's been quite hopeful, actually, that we've found that a lot of people really support strong funding, even if they have concerns um, about what's happening in the schools. So what do you make of the legislative reaction to this initiative? Clark Corbin with Idaho Capital Sun wrote about this a few weeks ago that Stephen Thane, the chairman of the Senate Education Committee, mm -hmm. uh, Lance Cloud, the chairman of the House Education Committee, they're opposing the initiative. What's your reaction to that? Well, the first thing I'll say is their, their opposition to the initiative has not been, you know, necessarily very energetic or, you know, loud in any way. Um, they've commented, you know, that they, they disagree with it. But as far as we can tell, there hasn't been any kind of like campaign waged or begun, no campaign has begun to actually convince people not to vote for it. Um, the concerns they've raised, just so far at least, just haven't been compelling, and I don't think they would be very persuasive for most Idaho voters. So when they just say, you know, we're not, we, we can't pay any new taxes, even if the taxes are very reasonable taxes that will only be paid by a small percentage of the highest, the very highest earners in the state um, who are doing really well economically and who can afford to pay more. So they, they've brought up these concerns and, and maybe, there, maybe there are other concerns that you have in mind that you've read, but um, most of it has to do with the taxes and we actually find the taxes are very reasonable and when we talk to people all over the state about it, uh, most people either find the taxes reasonable enough to where they'll go along with it or they even see the taxes as something that is attractive about the initiative. <laughs> so that's, that's another factor. And that is part of the rub here. I mean, this is what the initiative process is all about and has been about mm -hmm. for decades, that it is a reaction from the public to legislative action or inaction. There's going to be an adversarial right. push and pull here. That's right. And, and I mean, one just response that I think a lot of us have to when we, when we see legislators kind of be dismissive out of, out of hand um, when it comes to this initiative is we want to see their plan, right? What's, what's your plan to 
really substantially increase funding for education because what we've seen is a major erosion of funding for education, not just in recent, really in the last 25 years. And, um, and what we've also seen in the last six, seven years, and different people might read this differently, but there has been some measure of reinvestment in education. But sadly, we've seen a lot of legislators really patting themselves on the back about that, when the truth is that we've just barely begun to dig ourselves out of a very deep hole. Mm -hmm. and, they, and in our view, these legislators often present it as if, as if we've dug ourselves out. And, and it just the facts just don't bear that out. We're still dead last by far out of 50 states in funding per student. Um, and, our, and, and it's really having an impact on the quality of education. It's really having an impact on our ability to te keep, keep teachers in the classroom, keep support staff in the classroom, and, and support our programs. So you touched on the lawsuit and the challenge to the, the law that was passed earlier this year. Talk about that process from your perspective. The, the bill that became law, the, the bill that you challenged in court, were you, were you surprised at the, the, the level of uh, the hurdles that were placed upon the initiative process by that, uh, by that bill? It, it was... I mean, on the face of it, it was yes, it was it was shocking that the legislate that the majority of legislators and I, let's just tell the truth, it was the Republican majority in the legislature. Um, it was it was shocking that they would propose a bill that would just give Idaho by far the the most restrictive signature gathering rules in the country, and that they would go far beyond what any other state has done by requiring every. A large number of signatures from every single all state thirty-five legislative districts, and we thought that was extreme. It turned out, and we could talk a little bit more about this, but turned out that the Idaho Supreme Court called it a form of tyranny, because you might not notice this on the face of it, but when you require all thirty-five districts, you're essentially giving all of the power to any one district, right. uh, even if there's overwhelming support in the thirty-four other districts. Just one district can kill an initiative. It effectively, has veto power over the remains. That's, that's right, state. and that's where the, state. the Idaho Supreme Court really—they really put their foot down and said, "Look, you all claim, you all, the leg legislature, claim that there's some kind of danger of the tyranny of the majority. Like the people are like some, like the people of Idaho are like some kind of mob who are going to tyrannize over others." Um, when the reality is what you're proposing is a tyranny of, not of the majority, but a tyranny of the minority. You're giving, you're granting veto power, you're granting a kind of tyrannical form of, of power to any one district. And I would add to that any one special interest group potentially, because a really well-funded special interest group could focus on one district. And if they could make an initiative unpopular in just one district, Mm -hmm. They could kill an entire initiative. So, yes, it was an extreme um, bill they put forward. The Idaho Supreme Court ended up calling it a grave, I've got this quote burned into my memory, a grave infringement on the people's constitutional rights. Um, and the court ruled that 
yes, it is in fact a constitutional right. That not only that, um, the initiative process is a fundamental right. And that means that when legislators meddle with it, it should be thought of in the same way as if they were to go after the Second Amendment or if they were to go after the First Amendment, you know, people's right to bear arms or their right to assemble or worship. Um, that's how the initiative process should be thought of because... It's a fundamental foundational right. In yeah, and, and it, you know, it's not just people out there with pens and clipboards getting signatures. It's, it's one of the key ways that the ordinary citizen can have a voice in their government. And that, and that the court found was, was fundamental, which was an enormous relief for us. So just a last question. I'm curious about this. Um, you were successful in getting the Medicaid expansion passed in, in 2018. You're, you're trying to replicate this now in 2022. Is this the end game for Reclaim Idaho? Is, is this your modus operandi moving forward? Is the initiative process or do you see your group or yourself uh, playing a different role in Idaho politics somewhere down the road? Mm -hmm. Good question. I, I love that question because we've been thinking a lot about that. Um, what we've come to believe as an organization, and this includes you know local leaders and, and volunteers around the state, um, is that a, one big goal of ours is to pass these initiatives that, that can have a really sweeping impact um, on Idaho for the better. Uh, Medicaid expansion is now uh, securing health care coverage for over 100,000 people, um, which is just enormous. It makes an enormous difference in people's lives. Especially uh, given what's going on right now. Right, exactly, in the middle of a pandemic. Right, so one, one big goal, of course, is, is passing these, these big initiatives and making a big positive difference. Um, However, we've come to think of that as not, in a, in a sense, not our end goal. It's, it's um, our end goal is in some ways something bigger, um, which is that as we organize these initiative campaigns, we're also bringing a lot more people into the process. Uh, we are giving thousands of people around the state some of the basic skills and capacities and also the basic level of confidence and the relationships with one another that they need in order to really have a voice and to, and to you know, get involved and, and to change this state for the better. So it's um, a participatory power in, on all of this. It, it really is. And, and we, we strongly believe we, we, in these issues that we talk about, affordable health care, strong public schools. But even more fundamentally, we believe in making Idaho's government work for everyone, um, and not just those with the most political influence, not just those with the most money. And to really make progress on that big mission, you've, there's, we don't see any other way than to get thousands more people directly involved in the process. And that's part of what we can do um, with, these, with these audacious initiative campaigns. Well, Luke, thank you for taking the time to get us caught up with where things stand right now, and maybe we'll get back together uh, as the campaign unfolds. Love to be back eventually. Kevin, thanks so much. Thank you. Again, that was Luke Mayville, the co-founder of Reclaim Idaho.
That'll wrap it up for the podcast this week. It has been a full week at Idaho Education News. A lot of news to catch up on at the homepage, idahoednews.org, if you haven't already. I have the story on the dueling executive orders between Governor Brad Little and Lieutenant Governor Janice McGeehan. If somehow you missed that story, which I kind of doubt. We also have full coverage of the coronavirus pandemic, the latest numbers and how that affects schools. Blake Jones has a story about a possible recall election in the West Ada School District. And we have much more at the homepage at idahoednews.org. Check in daily. We have the latest news on education policy and education politics right there. Follow us on Twitter at idahoednews. We tweet out links to our latest stories and bulletins on breaking news. Follow us on Twitter. Comment there. And check back next Friday for another edition of the podcast. Until then, I'm Kevin Richard. Stay safe and have a good week.